Hey everyone, welcome to Invested, the Rule One podcast. I'm Danielle Town. As part of our Back to Basics series, my dad and I had the great pleasure of having our first guest on our podcast, and we started off with someone we were both absolutely thrilled to talk to, Guy Spear. Guy is a value investor, a hedge fund manager, and author of a book called Education of a Value Investor. We got to sit down with Guy, and we had such a good time that we ended up talking for longer than the time we had for just one podcast episode. So we're splitting it up into three episodes. This is the second of the three. I hope you enjoy. I've started doing something I'm really excited about. Tell us. <laughs> so I've done two of them. And it started off when a friend of mine from business school, he's, he's actually from the family. So his name's Brian Lawrence, company's called Yorktown Partners. They were significant shareholders in Crosstex. And um, he sent me a white paper on renewables. So it doesn't even have his name at the top. It's just a sort of like a simple word memo. But he gathered- This is like in, a research paper kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, but he gathered in that document um, some amazing insights based on conversations that he's had. Now I had no value to add to his, his memo on renewables because I know nothing about renewables. But the, he'd, but he sent it to me as a way of giving me an opportunity to get back to him to discuss what's in the document. And the top of the document says, if, um, um, you know, uh, please get back to me with your feedback so that I can incorporate your ideas into the document and send it out again. So it encourages people to, to give feedback. So I tried this out and I, and, and I did it on credit card networks. And I promise you, this is not the state of the art knowledge on credit card networks, but I thought I'm gonna try this. And it was amazing. Uh, I put it up on a place where people could download it in exchange for their email. And I had 300 downloads <laughs> and I got some really interesting insights from some people like one guy used to be in marketing at American Express. And so using uh, that white paper as a way of generating discussion on a particular topic. And again, not saying if you should be for or against buying a particular stock or not. So it happens Whoa, to be something that's... I really like that idea You're kind of crowdsourcing <laughs> it's, the, uh, the information. And you're serving a community. So you're building a community around the idea. And, you know, if they contribute... So then I wrote something else. I did something else about why, and Phil, I don't know why I didn't, I'll send them to you. I don't, so I did, why are interest rates so low? Just a thought that I had. And again, what I had to get over is that I'm, I'm writing this and I'm like, I know that I don't know enough about this. I know. <laughs> and, and the point is, and so I have this big sort of health warning at the front. I'm like sort of, just to be clear here, this is not the final word. And it's kind of hard because you're kind of exposing yourself to the world. and. And genuinely, neither of these documents are anywhere near the state of the art. But then I got a, on this, on this interest rates thing, I got a professor from Irvine, David Yang, who helped me with more sources. And some, some uh, he told me where I was right and where, I, where perhaps I need to modify my thinking. It was great. That's amazing. And then I asked him for, I requested whether I could attribute him. So I'm now gonna incorporate his thinking into the document. Then I'll send it out again. So I find that whole process exciting and fascinating. And I think I'm onto something which I'm excited about. So you know, you know what brings my bells a little bit about that is that we're trying to um, make, make it possible for an amateur, normal person 
to be their own money manager in some capacity, right? Yeah. And and us the biggest non geniuses, non geniuses, just yep. us and people here. Yeah. All three of us yep. in the non genius category. <laughs> just let's be clear about that. Certainly in that category, I know. Well. But I, the 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 notion that Charlie comes up with to support his success as an investor yeah. starts with this idea of being capable of understanding, and he goes into it pretty intensely in his different writings about how he and Warren have been successful in, in large part because they stay away from the edge of the circle of competence. Yeah. And they and they know, the, the really tough thing is they know what they don't know. Yeah. When most of us don't know, we don't know. Yeah. Because we don't know. Yeah. Right? So somehow these guys have a sense of what they don't know and they stay away from anything that's like that. And so when we're looking at doing a paper and it's kind of going around, let's let's say something that's a lot more sort of mundane maybe you're looking at Chipotle Mexican Grill right now because it's got this E. coli yeah. thing. And we use Chipotle all the time on this yeah. podcast. So you're saying, okay, I really need to understand Chipotle. Yeah. And I don't. But I'm going to yeah. write, oh, how long is a white paper for a regular person? Two pages. Two pages. Yeah. All right. I'm going to summarize some things about this that I understand. Yeah. As best I understand it. And I'm going to fire it out to people on my email list yeah. who I think might have some desire to contribute to this. Yeah. And it might be, well, you put it up and posted it and then yeah. just let the world take a look. Yeah. Okay. So in one way or another, people start throwing stuff into this thing. Yeah. Does that help you figure out if you have a chance of understanding this area? Is that, what, is that where you're going with that? I think so. But I have to be honest with you and say that I haven't, it has to help me. What did it, did it, I think that. What it helped me with the credit card networks and American Express, so in, in the first, I guess I'm in the second iteration, is that helped me get a sense of how much other people know. So I feel like I'm getting a strong mm-hmm. sense of what is, so what is um, my lack of knowledge and what is just uncertainty about the future. And so, so that already is a, so, so I feel like I know that they don't know either, basically. Uh-huh. And Does then- it give you perspective on your own ability? By, by discovering what other people have as far as knowledge on a particular subject. Yeah, and I, I think it... that, so, so just addressing individual investors, first of all, I started, I was very much like an individual investor and I was invent, investing friends and family money. I think these individuals, your podcast listeners, well, I'm gonna put myself in the category of the, of the audience, which is we believe that there's somebody out there who knows so much more than us. That is so true, I always believe yeah. that. And it's actually not true a lot of the time. And just the realization that that's the case. So what does the market know that I don't know? You know, and, and, and a lot of the time, and maybe these white papers are an, an opportunity to sort of learn, well, maybe they do know something that I don't know. And then I'll find out in some of the feedback. But maybe the feedback I've got coming back is like, no, they don't know any more than I do on this topic, which still doesn't necessarily mean that I should invest. But at least I know the state. Uh, of their knowledge. Man, that is so powerful, Guy. I remember reading Prem Watsa, who's often thought to be the Warren Buffett of Canada, said that the one mistake you can really make as an individual investor is to think that the market knows more than you do. They think yeah. these amazing, brilliant people out there know more than you. He said, no. And they, they, and they don't. don't. And, you know, uh, and uh, except every now and then, like the creditors and horsehead who knew way, but but what is so unpleasant about that is that they knew way more 
about something that ought to have been disseminated to the market and wasn't. And yes. there, was, there was something very egregiously wrong about that that yes. everybody sensed. In a fair situation, as the markets ought to be, uh, then they, they often, most of the time, don't know more than we do. Um, and I think that, you know, I'm sure you've heard this many times, but the, well, Phil, you were telling me how hard it is to manage money for other people because there are all these pressures that don't exist when you're just managing your own money. And so that's the huge advantage that somebody who manages their own money has, is that they have the opportunity not to be pressurized into making um, bonehead moves because they feel like they need to be perceived to be smart on the outside. Yeah, do you feel that too? I mean, I think Warren and Charlie call it the institutional imperative or something. It might have the wrong context there, but the idea that that what we're talking about is when you have when you have to manage someone else's money, then you're dealing with these expectations that you have. Right? This is what I'm thinking for myself is that the expectations that now I have to do something in a reasonable period of time here or they're going to be unhappy with me. To know? show that you're actually doing something. That I'm, that I'm yeah. worthy of their worthy. trust. Yeah, exactly. I have to do something. I can't, I can't sit here for three years. I don't think Charlie's bought a stock in three years. I might be wrong. He maybe he's bought something, but... I mean, those guys are capable of sitting there for a long time. Yeah, and Charlie says that the money is, you don't make the money in the buying, you don't make the money in the selling, you make the money in the waiting. Yeah. That's when you make the money. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that that's, that's a, you know, and the hard thing is, is that you can go into this professionally and have every intent of not allowing those pressures to, to insidiously invade, and they end up invading. The only thing I've learned is that there are, there are ways to insulate yourself. So what you can't get over is, Look, I have a terrible desire to be liked, and it's ridiculous, actually. You know, I should stop because it's and you I'm should really, because it's hopeless. So <laughs> you should just forget. It. <laughs> Especially when I'm, you know, he's already too liked. <laughs> he's too liked already. But and you know what? What really many of the things that impressed me with with Warren when I met him. So at the time, uh, he had recently so he'd owned so Jack Byrne, uh, the guy who used to run Geico was the CEO of a company called White Mountains Insurance. And for the time that he was the CEO of the company, Berkshire had had an investment with them. And then he stopped being the CEO. And in spite of the management team being a wonderful group of people, Warren just took away his investment. And that would have been a very difficult thing for me to do because obviously the management team who were left behind after Jack Byrne left, of course they would have loved to have kept the Warren Buffett investment and have that. But Warren was just totally clear. He was there because his friend Jack Byrne was there. And once Jack Byrne was gone, he was done. So he wow. so he was not fearful of being disliked or not being popular with somebody, which is utterly key to being a good investor. Um, yeah. How do you handle the emotional pressure of investing? Of uh, buying a stock and then it maybe goes down? Uh, so I love I love the the answer that I've given a number of times to these kinds of questions badly. <laughs> I love it badly. I love it badly. But you know what? And you know what? If all you do, and and again for 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 the for the audience, if all you do is handle it less badly than the average <laughs> human, you're so streets ahead of the game. And so just understand that we all handle it badly. The goal is not perfection. The goal is you know it's just a little bit better than everybody else. A little bit. Less. So, you know, I, and I, um, 
one of the things that we have when we do narrative is that we want to explain somebody's success by one or two things because that fits a good story. Whereas I think that in reality, success happens because people do many, many things just a little bit more right or a little bit better. So I, I think that it's, it's a very hard human problem and I don't think there are any, any easy answers. So I think that it would be so nice if I could say, oh yeah, that's simple, you nail it with this thing. But it wouldn't be empirically true. But what, what uh, so I'll just give you a few examples of things that I know will help with the emotional stuff. So, um, you know, this idea of dollar cost averaging, you know, manage the amount that you invest into the thing so that if it suddenly goes down by 50%, it's not gonna make you lose sleep. And assume that that's going to happen at some point in your investment. And for different people, I mean, I know people for whom 20% position in something that will reduce their net worth by 10% is not a problem. And I know that, you know, when I started doing this, a 1% reduction in my net worth because I'd had a 2% position that gone to 1% would have been extraordinarily painful. So, you know, that's that's one thing is simply position sizing and what what, what the rest of your investments are doing. So it's individual. You're saying as far as how much you could put in to emotionally handle might be different for me than it is for you. And it might be different for dad than for both of us. Yeah. And this is this, uh, this idea that, which is a beautiful idea. I think this idea that investing is actually an inner journey. It's an exploration of yourself. Who am I in this situation? Who do I want to be? What can I do? Just because my friend is putting 25% of their net worth into this. Who am I? Do, do I want to do this? It seems to me that every time you have to put yourself in a room, in a lonely place, and say, who do I want to be? What is my destiny, given the uncertainty of the outcomes? And actually, once, once you do that, I think you're in, you're in a position to make better decisions. But so obviously, the more, the less storm and drang around, the more likely you are to be. And that's why I think living in a place like Zurich is fine. But one thing that I didn't write in the book that is just so clear to me now, and I feel like so ridiculous for not writing you it. You get is to that, say it right now. Uh, yeah, I'm so glad to say it. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. And this, again, is such a beautiful thought, which is that, you know, uh, I could not be the best investor I can be if my primary relationship with my wife is not a relationship that supports that. And so here I was, busily setting up my office. You know, here we are in the library. The workroom's at the other end. All well, these things. First, we came to Zurich. <laughs> yeah, far away. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. All those exactly. things. All of that you can throw it away if your wife, in my case, my wife, is not with me in the program. And all of this can be wiped away if my wife doesn't want to support me. And. Uh, the opposite. I don't need all of this. And it's so, um, and I, I think that if I had understood that 10 years ago, I would have spent more time with Laurie, helping her to understand. So, um, you know, so in the good years, I've, bought, I, you know, I've gone through two years of terrible performance. But in the good years, I think that Laurie had a sense, well, this is easy. Look, this is what he does. And like the market goes up and he makes money. And what I wish I could have told her at the beginning of one of those periods of outperformance is, darling, there's going to be a time when I am going to think like I'm king of the universe and that everything I touch turns to gold. At that point, what you need to do 
is disabuse me of that sense of mastery, which, by the way, she's really good at. But, but in fact, because she didn't know any better, she was like, well, maybe he is that way. And actually that gives us... And, and the opposite, Laurie, when I'm really down in the dumps, uh, you know, you're going you're gonna to help bolster my sense of confidence and help me see that this too shall pass and this is not just a reflection. So, so the primary relationship, and maybe it's not just my... In different people, it's different relationships. In my case, it's certainly my wife. The, the one relationship that has been extraordinary for me is my dad. Mm. So he's, he's had a sense of confidence and belief in me that is really unwarranted given some of the some of the doozies that I've done. Uh, but I think that, so if I was rewriting the book, I'd say work on the relationships, get the right relationships. And I don't think that that's something you just, you have to build it up over time as well. So people have to see you through cycles. And, you know, the, the, the guy who helped me to write the book, William Green, was an incredible friend to me. So he came and visited in February. So, you know, I was in, in that deep, dark place called Horsehead, having just yeah, filed. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. And he had a wonderful conversation with my wife where he said, you know, your husband's going through a difficult time right now. And now's the time to be counter cyclical and give him confidence, you know, and to give him a sense that he's not all bad, which was so beautiful. And I, I kind of unpacked this afterwards because he didn't do this in front of me. He kind of did it subtly. But Laurie said some things to me that I was like, where did she get that from? <laughs> but it, it was... And I'm really and and I'm really looking forward to uh, watching her rip me several new uh, orifices. When at some point, God willing, not too far in the distant future, I'm feeling like I'm on top of the world, and she'll remind me that this too shall pass. You know, I have to say, uh, Melissa is phenomenal at this. When I'm down, yeah, she she just puts me out the door thinking I'm better than I am. And it's amazing what <laughs> yeah. that does for you, you know? Yeah. It's a huge thing. These primary relationships are stunning insight, I think, yeah. into investing. I agree. I agree well, completely. Guy also made a good point, which is that you also need to be brought down a little bit when you're thinking that you're way better than you actually are and maybe you need your head out of the I don't need as much bit. of that. Oh, and, really? and, 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 and I, I just have a sense, Danielle, that you do a fine and job. You of do that. just fine. This entire podcast is based on that thesis, so I don't need any more of that. I've already got you. And here, I thought the whole podcast was me just learning from you and just soaking it all up. No, the the truth is, when people come in the class, they all just go, "Oh, I just love the way she just tears you up. It's so great." But so, so here's the thing that I think that I didn't fully understand or wasn't as aware of now, then as I am now, which I think is really important. So people have this impression, well, I'm a value investor, so I sit in a dark room or I sit in a, in a sealed room and read annual reports and I don't interact with the world. Hmm. And I think that that's actually a, a, a deep misconception. Uh, and uh, another friend of mine who teaches a class at Columbia was the first one who talked to me about this, uh, this Ken Schubenstein, who... You know, the idea that Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger were sitting in a room quietly reading annual reports is is not the case. They were out talking to people. They were traveling to companies. They were meeting with managements. They were doing, they were active. They were, they were aggressively acquiring knowledge about the world. Uh, and so I think that it's, it's important to dispel that idea that if you're a, and I think that 
the value investing world attract a whole bunch of um, it's worse than it, well introverted is fine but these are people who kind of like don't like appearing around humans very much and they're attracted to that but that is actually not the personality type that succeeds the most it's somebody who's capable of sitting in a room and thinking but is also capable of going out and acquiring information and and I was like well, up to I think I was a bit of a one-legged man and asking to kick in contests because I can go and meet people but I wasn't doing it in the way that I really should have I think that's important I wasn't aware of that stereotype I because we don't do that I mean I don't do that I'm, I I think that there's this idea that you can um, sit in a dark room and figure it all out but to me that's all looking out the back window of the car trying yeah. to figure out what the road looks like ahead in the yeah. fog yeah. And you, you can only go so far with that. And then you have to move your attention forward. Yeah. And if you don't do that, then you make these huge leaps of faith that and what's gone on in the past will continue. And mistakes. And the mistakes. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah. Agreed. Totally. So in this, in this notion of, um, of Charlie's that we have, we're capable of understanding and we, and, and then there's this moat idea and the management idea and then the margin of safety idea. Um, so what I'm sort of wondering is that could you, could you give us any sort of input on, on um, this idea of moat? Like how, how hard is it to figure out if a company has a durable competitive advantage? I mean, do, some, do lots of companies have durable competitive advantages and then it's just a matter of waiting for them to go on sale or is it a really rare... You know, I think that if I stop and think about the environment that we're in right now, I, you know, everybody always says that the environment now is the most difficult has ever been. But I really think it's the case right now for the following reason, is that so many moats are being ripped to shreds by uh, the way technology has gone. And, um, you know, including potentially automobiles, banking, um, uh, you know, credit card networks I mean it goes on and on and 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 we so it's very very hard to it's becoming harder to identify moats and I think that's across the all smart people are seeing that mm -hmm. and what that means is that the the easily identifiable moats have become super highly valued mm -hmm. so uh, you know as I found myself realizing that these businesses that uh, I owned in the fund were having their moats attacked and then I was like, well, yeah, but I, I guess I'll go to some of these even safer moats. And then I realized that all of those companies had super high valuations. People had already figured that out. Yeah. And I think that um, I think that Charlie and Warren, I mean, they said it at this year's annual meeting. They said, yeah, well, you know, some moats are getting narrower across the board. That's just the way it is. And um, so it took me a while to figure out. And, and figuring out moats takes time. And so so... Uh, and I'm sure that there will be new moats that appear out of the the sort of um, the current state of disarray of many industries. There'll be new moats that appear, but we haven't yet seen them. I mean, I would tell you, I read in somebody's letter, uh, investor letter, that he was looking not at automobile manufacturers, but the people who put together the electronic dashboards for cars. So, you know, his thesis or the thesis for these companies is that, you know, a car is becoming more like a mobile phone on wheels. 
it's never going to be completely like a mobile phone on wheels. And actually, there are important differences, which mean that the mobile phone companies are never going to dominate either the car or the dashboard. And that's a specialized activity. And that might be a new mode that arises. Who knows? Uh, uh, so there will be new modes that arise, but figuring them out takes an enormous amount of time and reading and understanding. Uh, and so I do think that I don't know that writing a book about moats or trying to teach people about moats is is productive activity either perhaps it is for the reader but I do know that if you spend your world so if you spend your life looking for anything the more you look for it and you the more you try and find it the more discerning you're going to be as to both where to look and what a, a good result looks like so I find it interesting that good businesses tend to acquire other good businesses. So for me, the Nestle is here based in Switzerland is an inquisitive company. They do acquire other businesses and the management teams, they've been in so many good businesses for so long that they're good at acquiring other good businesses. They know what that looks like. And if you spend your time study in, in bad businesses, you don't even know what a good business looks like. And you see companies that make lots of lousy acquisitions. Um, I think that, so I am not going to be able to tell myself or the listeners some kind of blinding piece of wisdom on how to find moats. But I think that the more you look, the better you get. And the how more you, you find... Look, are you looking at industry as a whole and then you drill down into that particular company or do you do it the other way? So the way I, I love uh, this answer this, that I've given in the past is... I was so impressed by General uh, uh, Norman Schwarzkopf in a news um, in a news briefing about the first Iraq War, and so uh, you know um, Iraq had moved into Kuwait, and now the Americans were getting the Iraqis out, and so he's giving a press release, and this operation has just started. I think it's called Desert Storm, and he's asked so so which way are you going into Iraq? Are you going by sea? Are you going via land? Are you going by air? How are you going in? You know, and and I just loved his answer. He, he looked at the journalist. He says, "We're doing all of those things. We're going over. We're going under. We're going on the side. All of those things." And I think when you're on the search for um, so so Danielle, you now live in Zurich, uh, and I'm I'm doing a sideline to give another answer to the question. You are going to go. And we haven't done it yet, but you're going to go to Italy and you're going to go truffle hunting. You can do that. <laughs> and I just promise. <laughs> I just have a sense that the, I've never done it, but I just have a sense that it's the kind of thing that you would take your dad to do. And the people who do it just love it. And my can, wife. Can we get there on a BMW motorcycle, do you think? Yeah. Next could, summer? Uh, absolutely. Is it truffle season? you got to go in the right you season. you got to go in the fall. And you oh, know, the okay. people who do it, they kind of they Not get that this. I know. <laughs> Not that I've researched. No. <laughs> they get this wistful look in their eyes. I mean, they all just love it. So, you know, how does how does one of those boars find truffle? I don't know. The guy loves truffle. He like when you know when you so I just think that <laughs> I love that. He loves truffle. So like he's got his brain is working so many different ways to figure out how to get some truffle, you know, whether it's the way the leaves look on the tree. You know, who knows? He's using all five senses. And I think that that, in a certain way, is that really is that quest for undervalued good businesses. Uh, there's, the, you know, you're trouble I, hunting. 
I don't want to answer. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to be. Um, what's I don't know what the word is. I don't want to sort of like be smarmy or not. Not smarmy, but sort of like the the famous question that um, uh, Mozart was asked. Like some very rich guy at the time. I understand it's a true story. Comes to Mozart and he says, "I have my son. Would you please teach him how to write great symphonies or great music?" And Mozart said, "If your son needs to be taught, then he can't do it." <laughs> But that, that's actually the opposite of what that, I think. It's the opposite of what we're doing here, guys. Exactly. It's the absolute but here's, opposite. It's the yeah. opposite. <laughs> Sorry, take people. it back. <laughs> I take it back because here's the point. Here's the point. I can, I can, I can come back on this. I promise you. I can. I can. It's that. Is that nobody really knows? And just to try is already to win. And so it's not. So okay. Now well, you know what. That's true until you lose your entire life savings, and then a little less so. So I take it back. Let's 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 let's. I'm going to answer this question a different way. All right. And and this is yeah. You're right. I just like you don't have to actually wipe this off the recording. But listeners, <laughs> I have a different way of addressing this issue for you. Bear with me. So you start off. So it's okay. We can paint by numbers. You start off saying, I don't know a damn thing about this. Exactly. And I'm scared exactly. stiff. Exactly. Connect to that emotion and be aware of it, and don't pretend that you do know something about it. Because are that... you saying that you, as a professional investor, feel scared? Yes, absolutely. And I feel ignorant a lot of the time. So I mean, the... thank you for saying that because <laughs> a lot, a lot of us feel like that, and it's not okay to say it. Yeah, that, that's that's insane. And so uh, I say it for everyone. Yeah. Uh, so because so that is a liberating emotion because once you you know that's more than half the problem okay I don't actually know what I'm doing here mm-hmm. so and I do not want to lose these hard-earned savings thanks for listening to the second part of our interview with value investor Guy Spear check back next week for the last episode of our interview in which we'll discuss which investors he looks to for inspiration how he learned that forgiving himself was actually a key component of his investing practice, what he thinks is coming in the market, very interesting. And he agrees with me that sometimes buying stock is a scary experience. Thanks and check back then. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested, the Rule One podcast. If you like this episode, you can always get our show notes and more details and links to the resources we discussed at investedpodcast.com. Also, as long as you're online, head on over to investedpodcast.com slash workshop for details on an upcoming three-day live workshop that I'm hosting. All you gotta do to go is enter the special podcast code STOCKPILE, that's S-T-O-C-K-P-I-L-E, STOCKPILE, into the application form, and you guys can attend for free. So everything discussed on this show is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And it is not to be taken as investment advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really do hope you've enjoyed it. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.